Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 218, The Kingdom of Jorvik. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, they get access to the members-only feed, where we explore in-depth topics like Nordic culture, Celtic myths, and the theories that guide the way we understand our mutual past. Members also get rough transcripts of the show, timelines, and other supporting materials, which can all be accessed through the British History Podcast website. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price you pay for a latte per month. And thank you very much to Rachel, Alex, and Loki, yes, Loki, for signing up already. And I'm pretty sure we already have a Thor signed up as well. So I've got my fingers crossed for Heimdall next. All right, today we begin in Orkney. The history of Orkney is rather obscure, and that fact is reflected in the show, with it appearing only occasionally in the Scott casts and Celt casts. However, in the last 80 years, things have been changing rapidly for the inhabitants of this misty land, and the people of Orkney started to play a key role in the Nordic invasion of Britain. And actually, they provide a window into what's coming for Northumbria. Early in the Viking Age, the Norse discovered that only a couple days' voyage to the south lay an archipelago of about 170 islands that spanned the northern portion of Britain. And this was ideal for their needs, because the voyage to the British Isles was perilous. It required their longships to travel out of the sight of land, and that meant that rather than beaching their ships at night and resting, they would have to sail adrift in undecked open ships over black nighttime waters. The dangers of such a voyage should not be underestimated. But this is where Orkney and the Shetlands came into it. Their combined territory stretches about 200 kilometers, and that's vital because it meant that Provided that the Northmen kept their ships pointing in vaguely the right direction, those islands would be hard to miss, and the Northmen would then be able to utilize their knowledge of the islands to make much-needed course corrections. Consequently, this archipelago became a key navigational tool for any Northmen who were seeking to exploit the riches of their southwestern neighbors. And all of this focus upon those islands inevitably led ships to a large landmass in northern Britannia. Orkney. Now, Orkney was a natural waypoint, and so it quickly caught the attention of the raiders. Because if an arrangement could be made in Orkney, if that harbor could become a friendly port for Scandinavian ships, then Vikinger fleets would have a location to be able to stop and rest after their arduous voyage across the North Sea. They would have a place to resupply their food and water. They would have a safe spot to take shelter from any weather problems and await favorable winds. Orkney was key to this entire enterprise. But the Norse had a small problem here. Orkney wasn't a wild, uninhabited land. It was held by a group of people. Who those people were is a matter of some debate. Typically, the Orcadians are shorthanded to the Picts, but it's debatable whether or not they would have seen themselves as being part of a broader political structure called Pictland. Whatever the case, though... Orkney wasn't just up for grabs. So what is an enterprising Scandinavian captain to do in this situation? 
Well, it seems like from the earliest days of the Viking Age, they were moving to cultivate friendly relationships with the locals. And frankly, both groups had strong incentives to try and make this work. For the Northmen, this port of call was an absolute necessity, and so it was in their interest to play nice. Meanwhile, for the people of Orkney, the arrival of these ships provided their community with an abundance of trade, and thus a relationship with them would help the region prosper. In fact, this relationship was so beneficial to both parties that even when the raids increased, and it was clear that many of these Scandinavian ships were nothing more than pirates, Orkney still appears to have remained a neutral harbor and welcomed Norse longships. The truth is that a fight between the Norse and Orkney would serve no one. The Northmen needed a place to stop and resupply. Why would they want to disrupt such an easy place to acquire provisions? And the people of Orkney were benefiting from the trade, so why would they want to take a stand against these Northmen who weren't causing them any issues? These pirates might be causing trouble for the southern Britons, but that was their problem. As far as Orkney was concerned, business was good. Consequently, we have written records describing Norse slave traders in the 840s who'd been operating in Ireland. And by operating, I mean seizing slaves. Now, these same records tell us that the Norse would use Orkney as a port of call on their voyage back to Scandinavia. And upon arriving in Orkney, we're told that these slavers, quote, disembarked, recuperated, traveled here and there over the islands, and waited for a fair wind, end quote. That's remarkable. The record almost suggests that the Northmen were sightseeing while they were waiting for the weather to improve. It's kind of mind-blowing. However, just because the Norse were able to operate, visit, and tour around Orkney doesn't mean that the Orcadians agreed with everything that they did. For example, in that same account, we're told of how Irish St. Findon had been brought to Orkney as a slave. And while his masters were waiting for fair winds and presumably going and taking a look around the land and being like, oh, well, that's pretty over there. Well, some of the locals, who scholars believe were Pictish Christians, orchestrated Findon's escape. So we had a slave break. And then they ferried him to some Irish-trained monastics who lived in the same area. And there, Findon remained for the next two years. And actually, at the end of those two years, when he left the Christian community, it wasn't because he was being driven out or on the run from the Norse. It was because he wanted to visit Rome. It looks like he was completely safe there. So not only was Orkney apparently a tourism destination in addition to a navigational tool and a trading site for the Norse, but it was also occupied by local Christians who, at least in one instance, would help free Irish slaves from their Norse masters. However, we should not assume that all the Orcadians had an issue with slavery, nor should we assume that the people involved in this escape had an issue with all the slaving that was happening and were running some sort of underground railroad they saved one pious Irish Christian. And then he was hidden in a Christian community that had ties to Ireland. I mean, it's possible that the rescue of St. Findon was part of a general disruption of the slave trade, but it's also possible that it was an isolated event spurred on by his faith or his ethnicity or possibly even a personal connection. But regardless of the motives, this escape is fascinating nonetheless. And given how long Findon was able to remain in Orkney, 
and the circumstances of his departure, well, that suggests that the region wasn't fully colonized and dominated. I mean, he was able to hang out for two years. Now, at the same time, we also read of Orkney as, quote, laying next to the land of the Picts, end quote. So they weren't in Pictland. They were next to the Picts. And that suggests that by the 840s, Orkney was independent of the Pictish political structure. But that doesn't mean that the Norse had replaced them. The people who lived in Orkney remained there. And the records suggest that at least some of them were living among the Norse in peace. And these written records are supported by archaeological evidence. Digs have shown that many of the Scandinavian settlements within Orkney were located next to Pictish settlements. And actually, looking at buildings and artifacts, we even see evidence of Norse and Pictish material culture mixing. Meaning that, for a time, we find Pictish and Norse artifacts, as well as Pictish and Norse building techniques, occupying the same location and time. For example, we see this in Poole, on the island of Sande. Now, the presence of these items needs to be weighed carefully, because there's all kinds of ways that this could have happened. It might be tempting to assume intermarriage or some sort of political accommodation, and that may have been the case. But it also could be the result of trade, enslaving the locals, or any number of other causes. The fact remains, though, that we do have Norse and Pictish settlements next to each other, and we also have some evidence of Norse and Pictish material culture mixing. Yet, while it is clear from archaeology in the written record that Pictish culture was present in Orkney in the mid-9th century, over the course of the next century, the Pictish language, culture, and even place names would be replaced by Nordic ones. Actually, no, not replaced. Outright erased. By the mid-900s, Orcadians, who a hundred years earlier would have lived and spoke like the Picts, were now living in Norse-style longhouses, and wearing Norse clothing, and even eating a Scandinavian diet. So what happened in Orkney? Because this is the most thorough shifting culture that we see anywhere in Britain during the Viking Age. Well, traditionally, historians have explained this as a story of conquest. They assumed that the Vikings put the people of Orkney to the sword, and stories like that of St. Findon were shrugged off as only representative of the early period of settlement, before the violence began. But modern science has thrown a wrench into what we thought was settled history. The archaeological digs showing a mixing of material culture did give us an early hint that we might have been wrong. But the smoking gun was found in DNA. Recent DNA analyses of the people of Orkney have shown that two-thirds of the modern women in Orkney can trace their DNA to the region's indigenous population. Now, the other third can be traced back to Scandinavia, and that is a sizable chunk. But still, the vast majority, a full two-thirds of women, can be linked back to the indigenous population that were supposedly put to the sword. Now, you might be saying, come on, Jamie. These are Vikings, and I've seen movies. They probably kept the women and killed the men. If that was the case, we would anticipate plenty of Scandinavian-linked traits on the Y chromosomes of the modern Orcadians, wouldn't we? Well, it turns out that the majority of male Orcadians also trace their Y chromosomes to the indigenous population. 
So these locals who all supposedly died actually continued having kids. And their kids had kids, and their kids had kids, and now, over a thousand years later, you still have the descendants of those local Orcadians who traded with the Scandinavian captains, and they're still living in Orkney. They're still there. Now granted, what DNA evidence doesn't tell us is what happened to the individuals living during this time of migration. I mean, certainly there was a large-scale migration, but DNA doesn't tell us how the Orcadians dealt with it. It doesn't tell us how the Northmen treated the locals. It doesn't tell us how many times a Vikinger crew decided to storm into a neighboring Pictish village and carry off their loved ones. All it tells us is that, much like the Anglo-Saxon migration, we aren't looking at a mass conquest and genocide. Instead, we're looking at something much more nuanced than that. What's really interesting to me, though, is that when we look at burials, well, we're finding evidence of Scandinavian migration, which is expected. But when we look closely at some of the Norse burial types and the isotope markers in their remains, we're discovering that not all of these Norse bodies were actually from Scandinavia. Some were actually born in Orkney and the surrounding area. And this is true even for the early period, meaning that even before the names fully changed and Pictishness was erased, before all of that, we are already seeing the indigenous people being buried in the style of the Northmen. And not just in minor ways, but rather in elaborate detail. And the frequency of these kinds of burials increases over time, which suggests that the Scandinavian culture was taking root over the course of about 100 years, and people were trying really hard to underscore their Norseness, regardless of their genetic heritage. And actually, if you go to Orkney, they're still doing that. They have huge Viking festivals. But it does raise a question. Why was this happening right then? Well, we don't exactly know. It's tempting to just point to economics and talk about how culture often follows trade. That does seem to have been behind what was happening in the South. What with the Britons picking up the Anglo-Saxon language and culture because the Anglo-Saxons had the dominant position due to their trade influence. However, what was happening in Orkney is far beyond what happened in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. In the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, we still see remnants of the old British names. But in Orkney, Pictish seems to have disappeared entirely. And this has led scholars to wonder if something else was happening here. One possibility is that the Orcadians and the Picts may not have just been two distinct people, they might have also really disliked each other. And if we look at history, there's a few reasons for why this might have been. For example, in the Annals of Ulster, we're told of how the Pictish High King Bridey, son of Billy, led an expedition into Orkney and, quote, destroyed it. And he did this in the late 600s. Now, over 150 years is a long time to hold a grudge. But if you find it really hard to believe, remember that many people living in the American South are still pretty sore about losing the Civil War and regularly talk about wanting a rematch. There's even a common phrase down there that says, the South will rise again. And they're talking about a war that was fought on horseback. Sometimes people hold grudges that can pass down generations. So maybe that was what was happening there. But even if there was no grudge, 
and Orkney saw itself as being aligned with Pickland. Even in that case, there's still plenty of reasons for Orkney to want to break away. For example, you have the rise of King Kenneth MacAlpin of Pickland, and many people in Orkney might have seen that as a bridge too far. Because King Kenneth wasn't Pictish. He was a Scot, a Gael. His culture hailed from Ireland, and his rise to power could have been seen as the final nail in the coffin of old Pickland, the last gasp of the old Brythonic ruling dynasty, and proof that it was being supplanted by the Gaels. Given that state of affairs, the Orcadians might have chosen to make common cause with the Norse rather than ally themselves with the Gaels who were sweeping into old Pickland. Or Orkney might have just been simply itching for independence for quite some time, and the arrival of the Norse and the chaos of the regime change within Pickland presented them with an opportunity. And maybe it didn't occur to them until it was too late that such a change would make them vulnerable to larger and more influential political entities that were coming down from the north. We also have to keep in mind that Orkney and the Shetlands are out there on the raggedy edge. Their geographical location and the harsh nature of the landscape meant that the Orcadians likely didn't have strong political or economic ties to the Pictish hierarchy. The roots of Pictish power were likely dominated by the Pictish South. For Orkney, their close cultural, political, and trading contacts might have just been with Scandinavia, and so they started aligning with that group instead. We saw similar things happening in the Faroe Islands, Shetland, the Hebrides, and elsewhere, with the local populations starting to see themselves as Norse, regardless of their genetic heritage. But whatever was happening, given the archaeological and written record, as well as the DNA evidence, it's clear that the Norse settlers did come in large numbers, but it's also clear that they didn't wipe out the locals. The two groups were living together, at least in one fashion or another. And that brings us back to King Halfdan. He and his army had spent the better part of the year 875 subduing Pictland, Strathclyde, and Bernicia. And now, in late 875 or early 876, they were heading back to Jorvik. Upon arriving at his stronghold, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that Halfdan, quote, shared out the lands of the Northumbrians, and they proceeded to plow and to support themselves, end quote. It's such a small comment in the Chronicle, just a single line, but the story that it tells is shocking. Like his brother Ivor the Boneless, Halfdan had made a name for himself by taking large numbers of Vikinger crews, forming them into a great army, and despite the transient nature of such armies, he managed to control this force for years and led them through multiple wars. Now that alone was an impressive feat, and the reward for it had come in the form of innumerable riches through Danegelds and undoubted plundering. But now, after years in the field, Halfdan was once again seeking to evolve Scandinavian behavior in Britain. It began with taking Jorvik through conquest. But now he was going to do something new. He was going to share out those lands. And in doing so, he wasn't just going to solidify his hold on Jorvik, and thereby hopefully head off any potential rebellion like the one that took place about four years earlier. 
Halfdan was going to do something even bigger than that. He was going to turn his Viking raiders into neighbors. We discussed in earlier episodes about how going a Viking was a profession. It was something you did as a job, and many scholars believe that oftentimes it was a short-term job, with the ultimate goal of a Vikinger being the acquisition of wealth that would allow them to buy a plot of land, or whatever else was needed for a more settled life. So what makes Halfdan's actions special wasn't that he was encouraging his followers to settle. They probably wanted to do that anyways. It was the fact that he was encouraging them to settle here. He was carrying out the first major land partition of the Danish-held territories of Britain. We don't have any clear evidence of the scale and intensity of the settlement that followed. However, historian Peter Sawyer and others argue that it probably wasn't a free-for-all. The language of the Chronicle and later accounts by Roger of Wendover indicate a top-down affair where the land was deliberately handed out as part of an overall scheme that was set in place by Halfdan, and possibly his senior most officials. Like with many things that Halfdan did, this appears to have been more deliberate, thought out, and organized than we might have initially assumed. It was also far-reaching. This process was so significant that you can still see the effects of Halfdan's partition today. The three primary areas dictated by Halfdan still define the writings of Yorkshire. By making this order, Halfdan was literally changing not just his map, but ours. We also see place names changing rapidly in many regions that were likely impacted by the sharing out of lands. For example, there's suddenly a proliferation of towns ending with B which is a Danish suffix denoting a farm or individual landholding. Examples of this would be Selby and Whitby. We also see places ending in Thwaite, which indicates a clearing. For example, Slaithwaite. We also see, particularly within larger settlements like Jorvik, the appearance of streets ending with gata, or gate. And that was the Old Norse word for street. That's why Coppergate in York isn't Coppergate Street. It's just Coppergate. Otherwise, it would be Copper Street Street. Same with Castlegate, Fosgate, Skeldagate, and all the other billion gates in York. We also see merging of names, with Scandinavian place names that are followed by the English suffix ton at the end. The point is, though, that while we don't have clear documentary evidence of how Halfdan's redistribution of lands were carried out, nor do we know how extensive it was or who was impacted, based upon place names and how they correlate with locations that we know Halfdan and later Danish kings shared out, scholars suspect that this was significant. And at this point, some of you are probably wondering what happened to the local Northumbrians. The Chronicle tells us that the Danes were now plowing to support themselves. But only a year earlier, those plows were being guided by Northumbrian hands. And while names are interesting, they don't really tell us how the settlement happened, how quickly it occurred, whether it was violent, whether it was part of an orderly settlement, or whether there was a flood of Danish settlers. Names tell us pretty much nothing when it comes to that. But this is where Orkney is instructive. In Orkney, we don't just see a proliferation of new Scandinavian names and material culture. We see what essentially amounts to a complete cultural replacement. 
an erasure of previous Orcadian culture. And even in that situation, we still don't see evidence for genocide or mass ethnic displacement. And the majority of modern Orcadians are descendants of the indigenous people of Orkney. And the situation in Northumbria was far less stark than in Orkney. In Northumbria, the spread of Scandinavian culture was mixed. We do see Scandinavian names and material culture appear, but Anglo-Saxon names and artifacts still remained as well. And it won't surprise you to learn that, much like in Orkney, DNA analyses suggest that the local population stuck around and they weren't wiped out. Furthermore, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, the conversion of the Danes to Christianity in this region occurred remarkably quickly. And a hint to why that might have happened can be found in this transition that was occurring within the Great Army, where we had warriors becoming neighbors. The thing is that by having land and responsibilities, by being settled in a static location rather than being nomadic, these warriors were being obligated to live according to the political code of that region. They were being placed under legal constraints. They couldn't escape consequences by sailing away anymore, but instead, they would have to interact with the same groups of people day in and day out. So people who used to be nothing more than targets for looting were now people that they would have to rely on for blacksmithing, farm work, and all manner of other necessities of life. The Scandinavians suddenly had skin in the game. And that was definitely in Halfdan's interest. The last thing that Halfdan would have wanted was a sudden flood of spurned crews who were patrolling and raiding along the coasts of his kingdom. It was far more preferable to have his highly trained and experienced raiders settled all throughout Jorvik. That way, they'd have no incentive to want to cause trouble and actually would be motivated to keep the kingdom safe. But as a fascinating side effect, it does appear that conversions to Christianity followed soon after the settlement, and that probably came as a result of the increased contact with the locals. But all of this leaves us with the question of what happened to the Northumbrians when Halfdan marched in and just started handing out plots to his followers. Well, a major illuminating factor is that we're told that Halfdan and his great army shredded the fabric of political life in the Heptarchy. In fact, after they were done here, there wasn't a Heptarchy. And this political destruction is the most pronounced in the Danish-dominated regions of Northumbria and East Anglia. Once Halfdan was done with Jorvik, the ruling order had been so thoroughly destroyed that it would never be reformed. Centuries of rule by five major families had fully been brought to an end. And reading between the lines, what we can surmise is that the political sphere of Northumbria was absolutely wrecked, and the old dynasties were stripped of land and power, and quite likely killed. But... At the same time, we're also told that, quote, important elements, end quote, in local government and hidage matters. Hidage, by the way, is the system of land use and division. Well, we're told that they remained. And that implies that despite losing the ruling class, the top-down agrarian structure of the economy still remained. The peasants probably stayed where they were, 
as they wouldn't have had any other options due to the economic structure of the Middle Ages Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and the tremendous downward social pressure that everyone was under. So basically, the Northumbrian peasants probably still worked lands that they didn't own and had to pay rent for the right to do so to people who would never deign to till the soil themselves. Really, for many of the Northumbrians, the only change would have been that the people collecting rent were now taller and more easily sunburned. So lands were handed out, and it appears that they followed a scheme similar to how the Anglo-Saxons had arranged their lands. And here's a hypothetical example of what a Middle Ages multi-villa state might have looked like. You'd have a central estate with a bound hamlet attached, and that would be ruled over by a powerful local landlord. And that estate would be connected to and gather rent from probably about five nearby villages, each with their own dependent settlements that were ruled over by lesser landlords who gather rent from those who served them, usually the peasants who were working the land. In addition, there might be a few free landowners within those smaller villages who would control their own plots of land and pay rent to the ruler of the village. But they'd still be powerful enough to hold a large plot of land and draw payment from their own peasants. Medieval society basically formed a pyramid structure with the bulk of the population, the peasants, forming the base. And then there were ever smaller numbers of people as you got closer to the top. And circumstantial evidence in sources like the history of St. Cuthbert suggests that this same scheme remained under Danish control, and that as Halfdan shared out the lands, he exploited the pre-existing structure, handing out large multi-villa estates to his closest companions, and then the smaller villes and plots would then cascade down to the less influential and less powerful members of the great army. But as we've talked about earlier, it's thought that Halfdan's great army wasn't particularly big, especially when you compare it with the scale of lands that he had just acquired and was sharing out. And scholars have looked at this and determined that despite the fact the Chronicle states that the Danes were plowing, it's highly unlikely that any of the settling invaders were actually doing farm work. Instead, they were probably placed in positions of power over lands of their own. Other people could work in the field, namely Northumbrian people. And we do see the Danes doing this elsewhere. For example, in a later account by Athelweird, when talking about how East Anglia was partitioned, he mentioned that the East Anglians were brought under the yoke of their new lordship. Basically, that the peasants now had to farm for their new Danish masters. And scholars believe that the same thing was probably happening in Northumbria. But something else appears to have been happening in Northumbria that's absolutely fascinating to me. Given how small the army was and how much land had just been acquired, scholars also suspect that some of the lands that were being handed out were soon privatized and sold. I mean, powerful Scandinavian warriors could only take and hold so much land. And much like how the Anglo-Saxon lords would sell lands when they needed to, it seems that the Scandinavians were doing the same thing. They took up a big chunk of land, held what they needed to, and turned a profit on the rest. And this process is thought to be the origin of English Copeland, which means bought land in Old Norse. So, the Danish occupation of Jorvik was now in full swing. But... 
for the general public, a lot of the old Anglo-Saxon ways still survived. The lives of the peasants probably remained largely unchanged, and the Scandinavian pirates apparently converted quickly and adapted to Anglo-Saxon pastoral life. Meanwhile, wealthy and enterprising people from Scandinavia were likely beginning a second and larger wave of migration, which was spurred on by the chance to buy up surplus lands from these retired warriors. And this second wave likely accounts for the increased presence of Scandinavian women and children in the archaeological and written record following this event. After Halfdan's partition, the Scandinavian view of Britain seems to have been transitioning from a battlefield to more like just a Danish possession. But one thing that I wonder about when thinking about Copeland and the fact that the Danes had more land than they could reasonably hold is whether some wealthier Anglo-Saxons might have found an opportunity to buy land from their new Scandinavian masters. I mean, given how much the Scandinavians seem to have adapted to Anglo-Saxon ways, and even their god, well, it makes me wonder if this particular settlement was less like an apartheid and more like an integration. And maybe some Anglo-Saxons found a way to actually move a little bit up the ranks in the chaos of it all. Actually, Sawyer and others do believe that by adopting the pre-existing estate structure and maintaining the important elements of Anglo-Saxon society, many of the Scandinavian settlers were forced to live and work alongside the Anglo-Saxons. And that would have accelerated the cultural drift and essentially forced integration. And this effect seems to have been particularly true of the established multi-villa states, which I gave an example of earlier. But conversely, when we look at the main concentrations of Scandinavian place names, so all the Bees, Thwaites, Thorps, and the like, well, it appears that they are most common in the outliers of the large estates, meaning the more isolated locations. And some scholars argue that this might have been due to those lands being acquired by independent Scandinavian settlers who weren't yet incorporated into the larger multi-villa estates until later. And don't forget that the Scandinavians weren't a monolithic organization. So even though Halfdan was setting up this scheme, it doesn't mean that everyone truly owed him fealty, or at least believed that they owed him fealty. And other Scandinavian settlers might have been either buying up or seizing lands of their own during the chaos of this era. In fact, the Doomsday Book later mentions that there were large numbers of Sokmen in Lincolnshire. Sokmen are free, unbound peasants. Now granted, free peasants weren't a Scandinavian invention. However, as Hadley argues, the presence of earlier isolated independent settlements might account for why there were so many Sokmen in Lincolnshire, and that this phenomenon might have been prompted and encouraged by the Scandinavian conquest. Basically, the larger estates, the more people were forced to live next to each other, the more integration there seems to have been while the more isolated pockets tended to remain culturally distinct for a longer period of time. And the presence of those isolated pockets might account for the later appearance of free, unbound peasants. But the takeaway from all of this is that first, Scandinavian settlement accelerated following this event. Second, integration occurred rapidly, possibly due to the fact that the structure and logistics of settlement required interaction between most of the settlers and the locals, with only outlying pockets appearing to break from that behavior. 
And finally, much like in Orkney, the popular myth of a violent takeover appears to have been overblown. Things might have been brutal for the upper classes of Northumbria, but as for widespread suffering throughout Northumbria, it appears that, on the whole, this was more of a matter of losing one boss and getting a new one. However, according to Roger of Wendover, there was at least one casualty of this land division. Roger tells us that, upon seeing how the lands of Jorvik were distributed to the great army, King Rixiga of Bernicia, the rebel king of the north, died of a broken heart. And then King Egbert II succeeded to the throne. But even in Bernicia, we see how the reality of the Viking era is far more nuanced than we previously thought, and how far it is from the popular tales that are told in fiction. Because despite being subdued by Halfdan, Bernicia appears to have continued to operate outside the direct control of Jorvik. In fact, Elderman Aidwolf was ruling over Banborough during this period, and he would continue to do so for another 37 years. And that's notable because he was a friend of Alfred the Great's. So while Jorvik was being shared out, Bernicia appears to have had some degree of autonomy, and they appear to have at least been nominally friendly with Wessex. And that might have been allowed because Halfdan seems to have had bigger fish to fry than just Northumbria. Virtually all levels of land ownership in the kingdom of Jorvik, the base of his operations, were now firmly in the hands of his loyal supporters. And he had subdued virtually all of Britain with the exception of Wales and Wessex. His reign on the island was now secure. And that meant that he was free to pursue his ultimate goal. So with his men installed in Jorvik, Halfdan set off to retake the last piece of territory that had been lost when his brother, Ivor the Boneless, had died. He boarded a ship and set course for Ireland. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And please come join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And links to all our other communities can be found on the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.